Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. This is the second in a series of interviews about theater in the age of COVID. My guest is John Fisher, who is the executive and artistic director of Theater Rhinoceros, Theater Rhino in San Francisco, since 2003. Let's go back in time to last February. At the time, there was a show running at Rhino? Actually, we'd had a show that was a hit, and we took two weeks off for the cast, and then we were going to reopen it at the Marsh in a new venue. When we reopened the show, they started shutting down theaters, literally that week. On Wednesday, they started shutting down the big theaters, and they started shutting down the medium-sized theaters. And by Saturday, which was our opening night, they were shutting down our-sized theaters. And it was amazing because we had a major reviewer coming that night, and a few invited guests, and they let us perform that night. And I think it was literally the last public performance of a live piece of theater in San Francisco. And it was very scary. People were like sitting with dozens of seats between them. The audience was very nervous. The actors were nervous. I I felt like we were like just under the wire. And literally the next day, Sunday, there was no theater in San Francisco. And then on Monday, there was shelter in place. So it was very frightening coming on. But we very quickly changed our approach and started broadcasting on Zoom and Facebook Live even that week. And so by Saturday of the following weekend, I did my first solo show which was called A Tourist in Hawaii, which was all about COVID-19 coming to Hawaii and Hawaii's long history with disease and how this sort of fit into a sort of a pattern of Hawaiians being wiped out by disease. It's a very frightening time. You were in Hawaii, is that correct? As it was unfolding, I was in Hawaii with my husband, Michael. The theater shuts down Sunday. What point did you meet up with the other rhino people and say, hey, we got to do something here? And how did that work? Well, we just happened to have a board meeting on Monday night, and that was literally the first time I'd ever been on Zoom. Uh, We couldn't get together. That was not, nobody wanted to do that. It was illegal. It was unsafe. So we met on Zoom. And as we were talking, I realized, you know what? We can broadcast something on this platform. It doesn't just have to be us having a board meeting. And immediately the board had ideas. I had ideas. We had a discussion. So by the end of the board meeting on Monday, we had pivoted and were ready to launch into COVID production. At that point, did you say, hey, I'm going to do a one-man show. I did World War II. Give me a shot at this. How did that work? Yeah, well, I figured that was the easiest thing to do. I was safe with myself. I'm a pod. You know, there's only one of me, right? You know, I don't have to worry about getting disease from anybody. I could do it in my apartment. I wanted to do a show about Hawaii. I started drawing up notes. I came up with an outline, and I just worked off of an outline. So it was partially memorized by Saturday, but I had the outline there to keep me on track. And yes, it was very much like a history of World War II. It was kind of my thoughts, my personal experience of a cataclysm. But, you know, also I tried to find the humor in it, what little there was of it, and tell the story of the world changing. Michael is there with you, right? Yes. Did he work with you as kind of a director, kind of? So you had another person there while you were working on it? Or was this just you? 
It was just me. I mean, Michael's helpful in a million other ways. I mean, he went into overdrive on the sort of infrastructure thing. We didn't want to go to the grocery store. So Michael started ordering stuff immediately from Amazon Prime. It was amazing. I mean, the, the world was kind of ready for this. Maybe it wasn't aware of it, but it was. And I have a director named Jerry Metzger, and he would look at um, uh, productions and give me feedback on them. So, but it was all remote. I mean, you know, uh, Jerry was looking at recordings. So in a way, it, as I say, I think the world was readier for this than anybody realized. And it was live. I mean, I said, eight o'clock, I'm going to do this show. And I was horrified. I've never been so nervous because I was like, my God, if I screw up, I mean, there could be, the whole world could be watching. There could be people in China watching, you know, but you know, then I was just like, well, it's a live performance. That's what live theater is. So it was live, but it was on Zoom. Do you know how many people were actually watching that performance? I think that first one might've been a couple hundred. And of course, on Facebook, you have people kind of tuning in and tuning out, people kind of dropping by. The scariest thing about it was once I started, I realized that there were all these comments being made. I saw the comments scrolling by off to the left. And I said to myself, do not look at those comments. Do not <laughs> look at those comments, right? And I didn't because I was convinced they were all like, this is terrible. Who are you? How dare you say these things? This is disgusting. And in fact, when it was over, they were just like friends, you know, sort of saying, hey, go, John. And I was asking the audience to make sounds. That's one of my solo things is make explosions, make jet sounds. And it was people like typing in jet sounds and explosions. I mean, it was actually a lot of fun to see what people had written. But when I first saw it happening, which I never expected, I didn't know you could see comments being made. I was like terrified. I was like, don't look at those. Don't look at those. Don't look at those. Is that particular production, was that recorded? And is that on the Rhino website now? Yes, I've done one solo show for every week of Shelter in Place. And how long are they? They run anywhere from half an hour to two hours. Uh, A couple of the shows have been me on my bike, riding around San Francisco, talking about the 60s and the hate, the destruction of the Fillmore District with redevelopment. And sometimes those have gone on for two hours, where I've visited different sites, shown people where uh, housing had been destroyed by redevelopment, you know, so it's interesting. And, you know, I have a general idea of how long they're going to last, but, you know, sometimes it surprises me. Sometimes they're shorter than I think they're going to be. Sometimes they're longer. And now there's over 30 of them that are all available on the Rhino website then. Yeah. And it's amazing because Facebook Live and YouTube, people just sort of find these things. They don't they don't know me, they don't know Theater Rhinoceros, but they're looking for, you know, General Gordon and Khartoum or, you know, the Fillmore District or, you know, Hawaii murder cases. And they kind of stumble across my stuff and watch it, which is sort of amazing. That would never occur to me that I'd be sought out for subject matter online. It's a completely different thing. When I was talking to uh, Pam McKinnon of ACT, you know, she recognizes that there are people in Europe and Asia who are now observing ACT performances, which, of course, you can't do live. Well, it's incredible. We did an Irish play, and we were going to do it for a reading, and we were concerned about getting Irish actors. Well, guess what? With Zoom, we had one actor in the United States and two actors in Cork, Ireland, doing this play. And They're all Irish. And these guys were up at 3 a.m. to do this performance for us. It was like, how is that possible except on Zoom? 
And it never occurred to me. It never even crossed my mind that you could do this. John, let's let's get back a little bit more to the timeline before we come up to this Irish play. So at your end, you're suddenly doing these weekly plays, which means you have a few days to write them, and then you're going to go on, do it, and immediately turn around. It's like my doing a radio show. This one's over. I do the next one. Yeah. Okay, so that's at one end. At the other end, for Theater Rhino itself, you had the 2021 season already charted out, correct? Yes. So you had this season... And you immediately, you guys immediately canceled it? Well, it was weird. For two or three weeks, I was convinced that we were going to go back into the theater and finish the extension of Radical. That that was my thinking at the time. It seems ridiculous now, but I think a lot of people thought that way, that, you know, this might, something was going to happen. It was weird. But um, after a month, we realized that wasn't going to happen. And then we had to alert the subscribers that we were canceling shows, but we would, we would replace those shows with other shows and online productions. We just did one, which was called Blood at the Root. And uh, that was a, a fully paid for production. If you were not a subscriber, you had to pay to see it. And um, we had another outdoor production of the Scottish play that we have to replace still. But I'm hoping that next summer or sometime in the future, we'll be able to do that. What is this Irish show? When did that air? That aired about four months ago. That was a reading of a production that we loved. And uh, as I said, uh, we realized that we could do it with actors in Ireland. And we did. And it was, it was great. I mean, it, it, the acting was lovely. And it was so great to hear those, those real Irish accents. It was luscious. You begin to set up this new system, and that included contacting people in Ireland. How many plays has Theatre Rhino produced up until uh, today, Thanksgiving? Well, we've done uh, 36 of my solo shows. Every Thursday night, I do a new solo show. And then we've done about 10 other productions, and these have been readings. And then we did one fully memorized production, and now we're on our second one. So we're into our new season right now, Overlooked Latinas is the first show of our 2021 season, and it's a fully produced, fully memorized, live, every night production that we broadcast out. And then afterward, you take the best of them and put it on streaming? There are four live performances, uh, five live performances, and then there's a one that's available on demand. And this is the first production that we've charged admission for. Going back again into the timeline. In June, suddenly we had Black Lives Matter. How did that affect how you were planning the next few months or even that month? It affected it profoundly. We are doing uh, all of our shows, all of our plays this season are BIPOC productions. Overlook Latinas is a Latinx production. Our next production, Alligator Mouth, is a Latinx production. The reviewer is an African-American lesbian production. And our final production of the season is a play about African-American queer men. So uh, I think that that's what audiences want to see. So it, 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 it affected our programming profoundly. You went back and you looked at what you had and realized you had to change it, or was that kind of in the schedule anyway? No, those weren't in the schedule. I decided we have to change. We have, we have to address this matter immediately and up front. 
Um, I wasn't interested in making a lot of promises. I wanted to immediately start casting African-American Latinx actors, paying them. I wanted to provide work. I wanted to, in our way, address the issues raised by Black Lives Matter. And of course, in the gay community, which is what Rhino is about, racism, particularly in bars, has been an issue in San Francisco. Yes. And, you know, I think that that's what's wonderful about theater is theater can be inclusive. And I, I'm not in the bar industry. I'm not in the drinking industry. I, I have very little contact with that world. But we really are about inclusivity. And I felt like it was very important to provide as many opportunities in this season for, as I say, Latinx and, and Black actors and staff and directors, stage managers as possible to address the matter immediately and head on. We have always done this, but this season we're making an even bigger commitment to it. Meanwhile, as COVID continues, first off, has anybody in your immediate vicinity of Rhino gotten sick? Uh, one actor in uh, one of our plays lost his father, died very early on of COVID. I've been blessed to have no uh, direct contact with anybody who's gotten sick. The summer continues, and meanwhile, the political scene gets hotter and hotter. Now, you don't seem to be covering Trump in your season. Did you cover that in your individual plays? I've talked a lot about Trump. Um, I think the discourse is pretty comprehensive with regards to Trump. There's a lot of discussion of him. I've only put him into my plays when I feel like I'm offering something new that I haven't heard before. Like I did a piece about Woodrow Wilson, who was basically uh, degenerating in the White House in the last year and a half of his presidency and getting weirder and weirder. And I talked about how there was no system by which he could be replaced or thrown out, none. And his wife was running the country and it was a mess. And I, I brought that up because it was shocking to me that here we were again, all this time later, 100 years later, Nancy Pelosi was trying to figure out how to get Trump out of the White House when he was sick. And there was no facility for doing that. So I've only talked about Trump in my pieces when I felt like I had something new to offer. John Fisher, with all of his 36 shows, has a segment now from one of the shows. When did the show air? This was prepared specifically for you, Richard Walensky, at KPFA. This is a one-of-a-kind presentation, a five-minute piece on the first congressionally sanctioned Thanksgiving during the American Revolution. The first congressionally sanctioned Thanksgiving came after the Battle of Saratoga in 1777. Yes, it was to celebrate the first great American victory of arms. I've always been a freak, a war freak. Now that's different from being a war monger. You see, I love Hollywood movies about war, but I hate actual war. And the wars in my lifetime have always been so boring. Quite aside from being stupid and wasteful and awful, but they've been dull. The Gulf War, the fighting in Afghanistan, bad. That's why growing up, I adored the American Revolution. So much adventure. I grew up in a colonial house too, which was perfect for recreating battles during the Revolutionary War. So my little brother and I would put on our bathrobes, which were very long, like Revolutionary War uniforms, and we would have a big fight. We'd have a big 
fight in our house a battle. You see, his bathrobe was red and mine was blue. Perfect. I made a tricorn hat by taking one of my mother's sun hats and pinning up the sides. It was so handsome. Then I'd take a broom handle for a musket and I would fight my way up the front staircase to outflank my brother, the British, at Freeman's Farm near Saratoga in 1777. So come on, radio audience, give me some gunfire. Come on. Come on, everybody. Come on, you can do it. Do it from your cars or at home. That's good. Good. This is a good radio audience. Good, good. Wait, 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 wait. I heard a machine gun. No, no, there's no, this is 1777. There are no machine guns. Yeah, okay. Cannons or, or muskets, okay. Good, 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 good audience. Good, good. Now, what was Saratoga, the Battle of Saratoga, all about? It was the dumbest British campaign of all time. You see, the British set out to cut New England off from the rest of the colonies. General Burgoyne, with his British army, would come down the Hudson Valley from Canada, and then another British force would attack from the west from Lake Ontario, and then a third British force under General Howe would attack from New York City from the south, and all three British forces would link up in Albany, and voila! The revolution would be won by the British. Well, here's what really happened. The forces from Lake Ontario, the British forces, they turned around and went home. What? Then General Howe, coming from New York City, he decided not to attack North. He decided he wanted to invade Philadelphia. He wanted to capture Philadelphia for the holidays. So he went to Philadelphia. What? Huh? So only General Burgoyne, advancing from Canada, he was the only one who kept moving towards Albany. And General Burgoyne, with his British army, he did pretty well. Until Freeman's Farm. That's where the Americans stopped him. And as I fought my way up the stairs, battling my little brother, I was General Morgan. I was General Arnold of the Continental Army. I was America. <laughs> come on, give me some explosions, radio audience. Come on, come on, help out. Audience participation. <laughs> and I won. I defeated my little brother. And I brought victory to America. Dinner, my mother called. And we ran off to drumsticks and spinach in our bathrobes. A wonderful dinner that my mommy had prepared for us, the two revolutionary armies. It was our first great victory as a nation. And what did we get from it? We got our first ally. Yeah! Two Europeans were so impressed with how we'd beaten the British in a stand-up fight that they became our allies. Yes! Louis the 16th and Marie Antoinette became our first allies. What classy people to have as our allies. King Louis and Marie Antoinette. Now that's victory. Thank you. John Fisher, this next season coming up, first play... I guess by now, Thanksgiving, it's over. That's Overlooked Latinas, but that's on streaming, correct? Yes, that one closed uh, last weekend and uh, is available on demand, so it can still be watched. But uh, the, the run of it were live performances. And in December, we're opening up our second show of the 2021 season, Alligator Mouth, which is a very funny play by a great Latinx playwright in New York City. Is that a one-man show? No, it's two people. 
So one of them is broadcasting from Kansas City, and the other is here in San Francisco. Is that Zoom also? That is Zoom also, yes. Now, I noticed on the Rhino website that actually people could watch that now, that it's streaming, that there's an earlier version streaming. That is a one-act version. Uh, We enjoyed that so much, we asked the playwright to write a second act, and he has revised the first act and written a second act. So the full title now of the full show is Alligator Mouth Tadpole Ass. And so what's online right now is just the first act. And that's been rewritten. And a second act has been added to make it a full-length play. And then in January, you have a show called The Review or How to Eat the Opposition. That's right. And that's a amazing play about the contemporary art scene and an African-American lesbian artist and her conflicts with a reviewer. That's a two-person play again. That one is three. So we've got a very natural progression from one-man show, Overlooked Latinas, to Alligator Mouth two-person, to three-person show, which is the review. And that play will also be Zoom. So it'll be coming from three different locations. Then there's a to-be-announced play, correct? Right. And that we're hoping we'll be back in theaters. That's why I call this the inside outside season, which ties in with being gay in the closet, out of the closet, but also now we're inside. Hopefully by next summer, we'll be outside. There's another show there called Mark Nadler tonight, a cabaret show. And you have on stage and then in parentheses, maybe, and that's in May. Yeah, that's May 23rd. So every day the word changes. But hopefully, 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 of course, you know, people have to get the vaccine and then people have to get comfortable going back into the theaters. So we'll see if we're not able to present those productions because of safety, we'll provide other things online. Getting back to your one man plays Thanksgiving, are you doing one tonight or are you taking a week off? I did one yesterday on Wednesday, so I I haven't taken a week off. I've done one every single week. And so I'm not going to skip any weeks. So I did one on Wednesday to sort of free people up for Turkey Day. So yesterday, Wednesday, the 25th, I did a show. Um, It was called A Gay Pilgrim. It was about a gay pilgrim. There were gay men in the uh, original colony. It's a well-kept secret. There were gay men. So I have to suppose that there was diversity on the Mayflower. How do you know about this? You know, you just type in gay and pilgrim, and it's amazing what comes up. They had a difficult time of it because they got found out, but it all worked out in the end. Have you planned any for the future? Do you know what you're going to be doing next week or the week after? I only know what I'm going to do the day after the previous week's production. So on Thursday, I do the show, and on Friday, I decide what the next week's show is going to be. So everything happens in a week. Have you had a chance to go back and see what you've done, or you're kind of one of those people who goes, I can't look at myself again? I have looked at some of them, and it's been a very interesting experience to to view these things. And so, yeah, I ha- I've not looked at all of them uh, by a long shot. Some of them I've never even peeked at. But others I've watched, I think one or two I've watched completely all the way through, and a few others I've checked in on. John Fisher, we had a long conversation the other day, and we talked a little bit about the difference between being an artistic director and doing solo shows. Now, 
Your solo show, World War II at the March, was so successful, it bounced back and forth between the two marshes. <laughs> yes. Now you've got this. Do you really want to be an artistic director, or do you want to try your hand at just being a solo artist? I love to perform. I really do. And I try not to let my brain get too wrapped up in how I perform or where I perform or who I perform for. I also like to facilitate art. It's a great privilege to me to be able to give people opportunities to do their own work. I'd hate to say that one has to eliminate the other. Um, I started out as an actor, and that's always been my first sort of creative impulse. But I've discovered this great opportunity with Theater Rhinoceros to spread the largesse. So I hope to continue to do both, frankly. COVID-19 has been sort of a surprising benefit to me because I've been able to do this solo work. And so it really has pushed me into the solo sphere. And I haven't really been able to do plays. I've done some plays online, but as I say, the, the great bulk of it has been the solo work. Do you intend to continue doing this even when COVID ends? Well, my goal is to keep doing it until COVID ends. And uh, after that, we'll see. I try not to let the future weigh down too much on this enterprise. So you said, you know, when do you know you're doing the next show? I don't know until I finish the previous one. So this is, this is great for me. I feel like it's the 50s. This is Playhouse 90 every week, a new live show on TV. I'm living week to week, and that seems to be the best way to live during COVID-19. I'm going to ask you a question that you may be able to, that you may answer with, you know, gee, I don't know, because I don't know. <laughs> we hear a lot about various demographics and how they deal with COVID and the pandemic. We don't hear much about the gay community. I know that a lot of the dating apps continue so people, I guess, are meeting, but of course, any kind of hookup or even any kind of relationship where people are not in a pod becomes very dangerous. Do we have any kind of idea of how the gay community is dealing with COVID? One of my solo shows was called The Drinker, and it was about somebody gay in AA, and the enormous pressure it puts on people struggling with dependency and the isolation and the lack of direct community and the lack of activities. You know, uh, their motto is halt, never become hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And it seems like COVID is an assault on all of those things um, just because of the difficulty of, of, uh, of living, especially loneliness. And it was about a gay guy who'd been in AA and NA for eight years, and it all fell apart during COVID-19 because he couldn't work anymore. He was an actor. He couldn't do any acting anymore. He was isolated. He was lonely. And he fell back into drink and eventually drugs. And I think that it is an enormous pressure on the queer community because gay men are not raising kids. They're not traditionally defined by the nuclear family, surrounded by people in their pods. Many gay people live as single. And even if they're not having sex, they're used to a lot of socializing, a lot of going out. And I see that there's some of that in the Castro with outdoor dining, but not nearly as much as there was before, obviously. And I know that it's putting an enormous amount of pressure on gay men 
who are used to a certain level of socializing, of going to the theater, the symphony, the ballet, of, as you say, hooking up. And I think at some point, people have decided just to ignore it. And unfortunately, that's where we are right now with the numbers skyrocketing. And really, the reason is behavior. It really is all about behavior. I have a friend, old childhood buddy, who lives in Wisconsin. And we were talking about COVID and the uh, exponential growth of infections in the Midwest. And my thought, he mentioned bars. And my thought was, well, okay, young people. And he said, no, the people in the bars are people in their 50s and 60s because they have nothing to do, so they go out. And they're the ones who are catching it. It's kind of similar to what's happening here. If their kids are grown up and they're left alone, what do they do? Right. Queer community is, I think, uniquely impacted because gay men traditionally have a lot of disposable income. Gay men traditionally like to go out. It's one of the cliches that you don't have to advertise. You don't have to do direct advertising at the gay community because they're going to go anyway. And when you shut down Broadway, when movie theaters are closed, then gay men, you know, what are they going to do? And I think it's a particular frustration. On the other hand, and this is, you know, my situation, given my demographic and the demographic of many of my friends, we went through and survived AIDS. We have a pandemic in our past. And that colors, I think, how we respond. So most of the gay men I know who lived through AIDS were actually in a better shape because we know what it's like. Yeah. That makes sense to you? Oh, sure. I did a, I did a piece. I did a piece about Randy Schiltz and how much crap he got for insisting that the bathhouses be shut. And when the bathhouses finally were shut and when gay men started to change their behaviors, Randy Schultz didn't hold a grudge. He wasn't bitter. He he got spat on in the Castro by angry gay men. And he said, I'm not going to hate gay men. I'm not going to hate them. They made the adjustment and they are not the problem anymore. It's the government that's the problem now. And I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying, that gay men have been through this before. This is not the first pandemic that gay men have had to struggle with and adapt to and, and, and learn from and grow. So I think you're right. Gay men are uniquely positioned to deal, to confront this, this, this tragedy. John Fisher, obviously we can't know the future and you can plan only to next summer because then hopefully things will change and we could plan out. At what point do you meet up with your, uh, the rest of your board and come up with another season? When does that start and how are you approaching it? We had to come up with the 2021 season and just decide that uh, we we're going to do stuff and uh, we're going to up the production values and charge admission. And uh, our subscribers have by and large come back to us. A few of them aren't interested in the online stuff, so they made donations instead. So we've, we've had a lot of support. I think the next season is going to be easier for us, no matter what it is. If it's another year of shelter in place, we will deal with it. 
And I think like you were saying about gay men and AIDS, Theodore Rhinoceros has survived a lot of changes. It was almost destroyed by AIDS. It was almost destroyed by the economy collapse in 2008, 2009. We're a very strong organization. Um, we have resilience. And I have confidence in this board because they are so supportive and they, they really have their ear to the ground. You know, I think the 21-22 the season, I hope, will be back to normal. But if it's not, we'll figure it out. You've been listening to an interview with John Fisher, who is the executive and artistic director of Theater Rhino in San Francisco. And to watch Theater Rhino, Zoom plays, and to see John Fisher's 36, 37, 38 plays, however many, uh, you can go to therhino.org. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. <laughs>